Okay. Chapter 35. And we're starting not only a new chapter, but really a new... new approach within Tanya itself. Remember, remember when we, we started in the first class and we spoke about Tanya as an instructional book, as a practical book, as a book written by a master who is putting all of his personal guidance that he has to offer into text form and giving you the experience of being coached through your own development. And the, uh, the way that I described it is to imagine each chapter being like another meeting, another yechidas, another one-on-one with the Alter Rebbe. By the way, that notion in general is not my invention. The Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Rebbe of Chabad, said that learning Tanya is to have Yechidus, to have one-on-one guidance from the Alter Rebbe. I guess it was sort of my uh, elaboration upon that to, to look at each chapter as sort of another meeting. But you remember that approach? from the very first class, that idea of viewing each chapter as another meeting. And therefore the Alter Rebbe doesn't tell you everything at once. And um, he deals with issues as they arise. So let's, let's look at where we've been. When we came in, we had no clue. We didn't even know about two souls, right? We knew nothing. We had just a bunch of confusion. And the Alter Rebbe, the first thing he did for us, chapters 1 through 8, is gave us a new lexicon, which includes a way of looking at ourselves and a way of, look, a way of looking at the universe and understanding the dichotomy that runs through everything. And although we weren't really given too much instruction in chapters 1 through 8, but just this new way of categorizing things was uh, a relief. Then in chapters 9 through 12, we learned about different personalities, namely Tzadik Rosh and Benini. And we learned that the key to the Benini is impulse control. And we elaborated upon that in chapters 13 and 14 and 15, how the Benini uses impulse control to have perfect behavior, perfect insides, even though he cannot perfect his, I'm sorry, perfect outsides, perfect behavior, perfect outsides, even though he cannot perfect his insides. Then we came to another Yechidas, let's say, chapters 16 and 17, where we are exercising perfect impulse control and it is working, except we're experiencing the frustration and the uh, discomfort of that discrepancy between emotion and behavior. And then the Alter Rebbe gives us a tool for slowly aligning our emotion with our behavior. 
and that is meditation, that we were, the tool that we were given in 16 and 17. Meditate and slowly create the feelings that you need to provide sufficient motivation to back the behaviors that you are already committed to doing through impulse control. Okay, <clears throat> so everything's going well there. Why do we come back? We come back chapters 18 through 25 because we're complaining it's taking very long. Taking a long time. So he says, okay, in case of emergency break glass, here is your special quick fix. It's called arousing something that is already there. It is uh, the, what we call the latent or innate love of God that is wired into the godly soul. And here's how to activate it. And that'll give you a quick boost when you need it. Okay. So then we came to 26. What was our problem? We had a perfect system. We had impulse control as our first tool. That means do, do, do the right thing even when, when you don't feel like it. That was basically 12, 13, 14, 15. Then we had slowly get yourself to like the right thing by changing your emotions through meditation. That was 16 and 17. Then we had quickly get yourself to like the right thing through arousing the uh, survival mechanisms of the godly soul that was 18 through 25. So what, what problem did we have at that point? What was our complaint? Well, you know, life comes up and there are issues and they get us down. And when we are emotionally, when we are feeling emotionally taxed, we don't do what we were taught to do or we don't execute it on a, on a uh, level of, uh, an, on an effective level. So 20, 26 through 34, we were given tools for happiness, for joy, so that we would be in a good mood and apply everything that we had learned previously in Tanya. Okay, so now that we've finished 34 chapters, what's left? What problem do we have? 1 through 8 was knowledge of our condition. 9 through 15 was impulse control. 16 and 17 was meditation. 18 through 25 was arousing the innate feelings of the godly soul. 26 through 34 was how to stay happy and positive so that you'll do everything from the previous chapters effectively. What problem is still left to address? Oh, the specifics of meditation? Yeah, I did promise you that we would get into that when we did 16 and 17. Yeah, and that's 41 through 50 are all the specific meditations. So that will come, yeah. What's the problem that comes up at this point? What complaint do I have? The complaint at this point is a philosophical one. By philosophical, I mean I'm questioning the very value and meaning of my existence as it has been defined up until this point. In other words, I understand, and not only I understand, but if I'm at chapter 35, if I'm really there, not just having learned it, but having applied it, then effectively 
I am on the Bainini path. That means I am attaining perfect behaviors. I'm slowly grappling with my emotions, even though I know I will never align them with completely with my behaviors. And it's working. And, and I'm happy while I'm doing it, because I have 26 through 34. So it's all working. What could I possibly complain about at this point? Why am I coming back to the Alter Rebbe for another Yechidus? And, and the answer is because at this point, I question the value of it all. From a philosophical standpoint. In other words, what's the point of it all? Okay, I get it. Not only I get it, I'm, I'm doing it. And I see that it works. But what's the point? The way that the Alter Rebbe has defined my goal in life, I understand that while I will achieve behavioral perfection, not only I can, but I'm expected to achieve behavioral perfection, I will never settle the inner conflict. That will never be completely settled. That will always continue to be a struggle. So the, the, the internal battle continues to rage, and I don't have any promise. To the, to the contrary, uh, I have sort of an indication that it's not going to ever end. If it were to end, I would be at Sadiq, and I already was told that's not the path that I'm on. So at this point, I'm questioning philosophically, not practically. Practically, I know that it works. I'm doing it. I'm questioning philosophically at this point, what's the value of it, of a life like this? So your attempt to answer the question is, it's bringing me closer to Hashem, and let me play devil's advocate, because I want to put myself into the mind of the person who has this problem, which is closeness to Hashem? What's closeness to Hashem? You mean like the tzaddikim? who sit and they meditate and they, become, they enter a state of ecstasy, I don't have that. You know what I have? I get up in the morning, I barely feel like doing the right thing, and I force myself. And, and, and the Alter Rebbe told me, good boy, you did a good job. Well, you know what? He's telling me it's a good job because he defines success for me, but basically what he's given me is a modified version of Judaism. I know what big boy Judaism is. I see the tzaddikim the ones who are able to meditate and, and enter a state of rapture and feel absolutely attached to, to Hashem. And, and I don't have that, that blissful experience. So you, you use the term dveikas. I don't have that dveikas experience. My bliss, I know where my bliss comes from. Places that, where my animal soul feels gratified. So yeah, I'm a good boy and I do what I'm supposed to do and sometimes I even enjoy it a little bit. You know, I have some feelings, like we talked about in chapters 16 and 17. They're not full-fledged emotions. They're more tvunais, what we call tvunais, appreciations. That, yeah, I get this. I, I can see why I do this. But I'm definitely not having the experience of Judaism and the experience of attachment to Hashem like a tzaddik is. And therefore, I'm questioning the value of it all.
So what really happens at this point is that Tanya defines for us the meaning of life. By necessity, a discussion of the meaning of life arises at this point. Not because Tanya is a book of philosophy. It isn't. But because at this point in my development, my philosophical question or doubt about the value of this type of life can lead to my, my undoing. So I need to be refreshed in my motivation that this is a worthwhile pursuit. That behavioral perfection is a worthwhile pursuit even when the internal conflict will never be resolved. I think it may be hard for us to imagine some some chidushim, uh, some novel points of Tanya are uh, hard for us to appreciate as being novel because we live in a world where these ideas already exist. So you might take for granted this idea. But what the the Tanya is explaining right now is what the Alter Rebbe has outlined as a as a goal for the Bainini is not modified Judaism. See, until now, until now we were telling the Bainini, look, there's a tzaddik and there's a Bainini. And Hashem enjoys the tzaddik. That's like the sweet dessert. Remember chapter 27 at the end? And then there's like the spicy snack. That's like the Bainini. Hashem enjoys both. They're different, but they each have their own special appeal. Okay, very cute. You made me feel made me feel very made me feel very special. Okay. At this point, though, what what Tanya is going to explain is no, no, no. We're not talking relatively anymore. We're talking absolutely. This that we've told you to focus on as a bainini isn't just of relative value because you're a Benini and you're incapable of finishing the, the internal battle. What we've told you to do, what we've told you to do by, by telling you to focus on behavior actually is the whole point of existence. Even for a tzaddik. Even for a tzaddik. Now how are we going to explain that? Let's, let's start from the beginning of the chapter. The chapter begins like this. The chapter begins by saying, we are going to explain in greater depth the word from the verse that appears on our title page. Remember the verse on our title page? Ki This matter, meaning the fulfillment of the entire Torah, is very close to you in your mouth, in your heart, that you may do it. 
And we've come back to that verse at various junctures in Tanya and looked more closely at different words in, in the verse. We're going to look at the words la soy soy, to do it. To do it. To do it. The primacy of action. Not just as a modified goal for someone who can only ever hope to master their actions and can never master their emotions, but the primacy of action, period, as an absolute objective value. Even for those who have mastered their emotions, namely tzaddikim. This shall be the comfort for the Benini, says the Alter Rebbe. He calls it a comfort. He calls it a nechama. This chapter is the nechama, is the comfort of the Benini. The Benini who feels existential angst and questions the purpose of life as someone who will never achieve inner peace. What do we tell him? There's an interesting passage in the Zohar that analyzes a verse from the Proverbs of King Solomon. And the verse is analyzed by a, uh, a persona in the Zohar known as the Yanukkah. The Yanukkah was this little kid. Yanukkah means a child. And the Yanukkah is this interesting persona He's this precocious child who appears at different places in the Zoyar and offers um, deep insights. So the Yanukah says like this, King Solomon, Shleim HaMelech said that a chacham, that a wise person, of b'reishoy, his eyes are in his head. And the Yanukah, precocious little child that he is, he asks a funny rhetorical question. A wise man's eyes are in his head, and where are everybody else's eyes? Not in their head? Rather, what it means is this. A wise man's eyes are on his head. He's watching his head, not his physical eyes, his mental eyes. He's monitoring his head. Okay, that still needs explanation. There's a metaphor of a man, or a woman, a Jew, as a lamp. Not an electric lamp. They didn't have electric lamps in King Solomon's time. A lamp. A lamp has three main parts the oil, which is the fuel, the wick, which is something for the flame to hold on to, and to draw the fuel in it, or through it, and the flame. Obviously, that's the functional part. The flame is what gives the light. The oil, the wick, and the flame. What is the oil, the wick, and the flame? 
the oil, the fuel, are mitzvahs. The wick is the body. Through the body, you draw the mitzvahs. And with the body, it gives a place for the flame to hold on to. And the flame is the godly light, the shechina, the presence of the shechina in this world that is generated by each one of us by doing mitzvahs. So those are the three components of, of the metaphor. I will tell you that I have found in my travels, in my uh, various different uh, Tanya experiences, that very, very often when I will ask people who have studied Tanya to tell me what are those three components of the metaphor and what they stand for, oil, wick, and flame, I find an incredibly uh, large amount of people, the majority of people, incorrectly identify specifically the flame. And I often hear people say, the godly soul. And it's ironic because the entire point here in chapter 35 is it's not the soul. It can't be the soul. The soul is not part of this equation whatsoever. Now, I think I figured out why people think the flame is the soul. And I'll, t and I'll tell you why. Maybe you could guess. Why do you think people think the flame is the soul? Yeah, which is also a verse of King Solomon. But where do we know about it from Tanya? You remember chapter 19? In chapter 19, it described the soul as a flame. So you have to just, you always have to remember, you know, in one place, one metaphor means one thing, and in the other place, the same metaphor can mean another thing. So, flame here is not the soul. In fact, the soul is not part of this equation at all. And that's the whole point of this metaphor. The point of this metaphor is, the soul is incapable of truly experiencing oneness with God. Incapable. That's counterintuitive, isn't it? Because it is part of Hashem. What does the soul have that your body doesn't have? What can your soul do that your body can't do? What's your soul good at that your body's not good at? Your soul is good at perceiving godliness. Your body is good at perceiving physicality. Indeed, that's why when the soul needs to go experience its reward in the world to come, meaning in the, in the, in the paradise of uh, Gan Eden, it needs to be disembodied. 
because the body would block that experience. So the soul is really good at perceiving godliness. And the soul... I thought it is godliness. I thought it's Yes, but we that's what we call it, that's true. But remember what we spoke about the soul back in chapter 3. The soul has ten faculties. And what are those faculties? There's a little review for you from chapter 3. Chochme bin Adas are the first three, which are cognitive. Chesed, Gvura, Tiferes, Netzach, Malchus are the seven emotional faculties. Basically, what is a soul? A soul is cognition and emotion. Specifically, the ability to understand godliness and to care about godliness. It's not using its cognition and emotion about anything else. The soul is an entity which understands and cares for God and experiences profound love of God and awe of God And that is precisely the point. The soul's experience of a relationship with God is a relationship. It's it's subject-object. A relationship. There are two parties to a relationship. So the soul loves God. Right. The soul loves God. Diagram that sentence. The soul is the subject. Loves is the verb, the action. God is the object. So soul and God are subject-object. Two separate entities. Indeed, the more profoundly the soul appreciates godliness, the the more pronounced it is that it's a subject-object relationship. which, after all, a subject-object relationship is subjective. I think that's a truism. right? It is subjective. So the whole relationship is based on the ability of the observer to observe. That's what subjective means. As opposed to objective. Objective means whether you know it's happening or you don't know it's happening, it's happening. <coughs> Who has an objective relationship with God? God. <laughs> the soul has a subjective relationship with God. Who has an objective relationship with God? The body. In fact, it's more than a relationship. Because the whole concept of two parties becomes dissolved when you're talking about the body. Remember we touched upon it earlier in Tanya, in chapter 23, And in chapter 34, we talked about the idea of chariot. The idea of a chariot. The chariot has no will of its own. Totally subservient to the will of the driver. The soul can experience godliness on a profound level. But that's just it. Its relationship with God is based on its experience of godliness. (coughs) Subjective. The body can surrender to godliness by becoming a chariot, a vehicle for the expression of God's will. 
That's objective. That's happening, whether the body knows it or not. Indeed, <coughs> the body doesn't know. The body does not appreciate what's happening when it becomes a vehicle to express the will of God. The body is totally... What's the word here? Oblivious to the unity that is occurring every time the body acts as the conduit for the expression of divine will in this world. So follow this. The soul cannot truly experience oneness with God. It can behold God, it can observe God, it can appreciate God, but it doesn't become nullified. The body cannot, cannot behold and observe and, 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 and appreciate. The body is dumb. The body is a golem. But the body can be a vehicle that expresses God's will. It can become subservient to, surrendered to, and an extension of godliness. So, if you really want to have a relationship with God, if you really want to become one with God. It's not through the soul, it's through the body. Even the soul, this is what the Alta Rebbe says, even the soul of a tzaddik, okay, so we got a double whammy, a soul and a soul of a tzaddik. So we're talking about ultra-sensitivity. It's a soul. Soul is all about sensitivity to God. Body doesn't have sensitivity to God. And it's the soul of a tzaddik, so it's got extra sensitivity. Will not become one with God, but will rather continue to enjoy a subjective, subject-object relationship with God. Which is very pleasurable for the soul. Indeed, that is the pleasure of Gan Eden, of paradise, is the soul's ability to appreciate godly revelation. But that's precisely it. It is experiencing as a conscious observer godly revelation. As opposed to what? Becoming the expression of that godly revelation, whether it's conscious of it or not. So let's go back to our metaphor. You want to spread godly light in this world? You want to bring the flame of the Shekhinah into this world? You can't do it with a soul. You can only do it with a body. The soul is not part of this equation whatsoever. The metaphor is the oil, the wick, and the flame. The oil are mitzvahs. Mitzvahs are actions. The wick is the body. The body is what you use to do the mitzvahs. And the wick holds on to the flame, and the flame is the godly light. So let's bring it back here. The Bainani is facing this existential crisis. What is the point of my existence as one who will only ever attain behavioral perfection and I will never settle the internal 
conflict. And he feels, perhaps, that his whole track in Judaism was invented for him as a consolation prize. But why are we talking only about a Bainini? What about the rest of the world? All of us, Kalachomer, us. Okay, a Bainini, and, and how much more so someone who's not even yet a Bainini. Exactly. Okay. What's the point? We're never going to get there. Or so this, this is the question. The person is saying... He can have no, no, no. The, the existential the, questions are not that no, big. No, it's actually to the contrary. No, it's to the contrary. Why? I'll explain it to you if you want. <laughs> person who's not yet a Bainini. So I didn't, I didn't get there yet. I didn't arrive yet. The Bainini arrived. He, he accomplished his goal. And now he's looking at life as a Bainini. He says, is that all there is? You want to talk about existential crisis, that's specifically the person who actually, he took the method, the methodology of Tanya, he applied it, he succeeded at it, he did exactly what the Alter Rebbe told him to do, and he got there and he's looking at it, he says, and you know what, after all this, I still feel like the same schnook inside, I'm still so, there's so much ugliness in here, and it's not going away. And to a certain extent, like it says in chapter 13, it's getting stronger every day. This is it. This is what life is. This is what it's all about. So at this point, he's looking for another book to live his life by. But why? But I thought because he... maybe there's... Because, you know what? I came into Tanya really upset about, the, about my, my inner inconsistency. And, and, and the Alter Rebbe sort of like redirected me, say, don't worry about that. Well, you know what? I trusted you for 34 chapters, now I'm up to this point, and we haven't done anything. The, the inner inconsistency isn't going away. Maybe there's another path in life that will address that. Because I see the tzaddikim, and they do, they do resolve it. Maybe I shouldn't have listened when the Altarebbe told me, no, that's a different category of person, don't worry about that, you just be a bainini. Well, maybe I don't like that whole premise. He's questioning the entire premise of the book and of life. So he has to be told, Wojcik, this is what life's all about. Let's pretend you were a tzaddik for a second. Let's pretend you, not only you were a tzaddik, you were the neshama of a tzaddik. The most sensitive, most uh, God-conscious entity there could be. You still would accomplish Nothing without a body. Everything would be body-centered, even if you'd be a tzaddik. So, you're a Bainini who's never going to accomplish the emotional, uh, who's never going to, to conquer the emotional vistas that the tzaddik has. But what I'm telling you is, even the tzaddik needs to do mitzvahs. And not just as like a part of Judaism. That's Judaism. All the consciousness and sensitivity and love and awe are well and good. But that's just an experience that the neshama is having that does not accomplish anything in this world. You want to accomplish something in this world. You want to spread godly light. For that, you need surrender. And surrender is 
your dumb body, not your smart soul. So we're comforting the Bengali by really by redefining his entire concept of the meaning of life. The goal of life is not vacas. It's not an ability to, to cleave to God and to, to experience spiritual ecstasy. The Bainani thinks we told him don't worry about it because he's not capable of it. We told him don't worry about it because it's really not the main point of life. You understand? The Bainani thinks we told him don't worry about it. Oh, Bubbele, it's not for you. He feels condescended to. What we're telling him now in chapter 35 is, no. Even if you would be this tzaddik that you're looking up to right now and envying, you should know he's got to do the exact same thing. When it comes down to it, his true connection to godliness is not because of his profoundly sensitive soul. It's because of his body, which can surrender to God's will and just become a vehicle. The same exact thing I've been telling you to do. The same exact thing I've been telling you to do. Question. Yeah. Not about the idea that our soul um, can, with its thoughts and feelings, propel our body to certain actions. Yeah, the question about, you know, our soul can propel our body to certain actions. And, and that's really been the focus for the, you know, the first 34 chapters was about making sure we have sufficient motivation to propel our bodies. But the bottom line is that motivation to propel the body is not an inherent goal. In other words, it's a means to an end. The end being practical performance of mitzvahs with the body. So we're concerned, yes, we're concerned with, with, with these feelings in as much as they get the job done, but not as a goal in and of itself. So yeah, we've been given tools. We've been given tools how to use impulse control to force ourselves to behave. We've been given tools to meditate, to give ourselves an emotional uh, motivation to behave. We've given, been, been given tools to get a quick emotional arousal in order to behave. So we've been given those tools how to get the push to do the right thing. But the bottom line is to do the right thing, which is what we said at the beginning of this chapter, the emphasis on the word of that verse. So the bottom line is action, action, action. Not like you think that real Judaism is spiritual ecstasy, and because never you're not capable of it, I reframed and I redefined the goal of Judaism, and I told you, you, you do the action version of Judaism. There's no action version of Judaism. That's Judaism. Ask the tzaddik, who is capable of the spiritual ecstasy that you envy. And the bottom line for him is the same thing it is for you. Action, action, action. Now I want to continue here. He says, <clears throat> because of this primacy of action, one should also understand 
that even within mitzvahs, there is a difference between Torah study as a mitzvah. Remember back in chapter 5, we spoke about the unique, uh, the, the unique quality of Torah study. Okay. It's, it's always funny, in, in, you know, in, in Tanya and in Chassidus in general, never get too rigid when you memorize anything because at a later point, we're going to have a, on the other hand, right? So back in chapter 5, it was like, oh, Torah is so great. It's like, it's like food for the soul and the, the mitzvahs are only clothing for the soul. Okay. Here we're going to flip it a little bit. When you study Torah, but hold on, let's back up to chapter 4. How many soul garments do you have? Three. Three garments. What are, namely, what are the three garments? Thought, speech, and action. Now, if I were to ask you to say them in order of inner to outer. By inner and outer, obviously, I don't mean spatially because it's a spiritual entity or they are spiritual entities, so they're not, they're not located in physical space. But what I mean is inner to outer, meaning garments of the soul express the soul. So which is closer, meaning is, is, receives the soul's feelings first, and which is the most outward expression, the later expression, or latest expression of the soul's feelings. Can you go inner to outer? Okay, what's the innermost garment? Thought. The second most? Speech. And outermost? Action. Okay. When you study Torah, the mitzvah studying Torah, you are involving your two innermost garments. Thought, and speech. But you're not involving action. If you fulfill the halacha that you studied, then you're involving action. But you have to fulfill it. So it's through the fulfillment, the physical action of the mitzvah, that you unite all three of the garments of your soul with God. Now follow this. I'm going to ask you a question. Remember we studied about the godly soul and the animal soul sort of having a parallel structure yeah. Remember this back from the first eight chapters. The animal soul also has garments, right? When you do a mitzvah, a physical action, by which your body becomes a conduit or a vehicle for God's will, whose garments are being used. The godly soul or the animal souls? Hmm. Animal soul. 
It's a cool question, huh? Depends oh, on your goal. Because the godly soul was given the body as a gift. Depends why you're doing it. You do mitzvahs. You're doing both. Yeah, it, it actually, it won't depend on why you're doing it. No, no. No, it won't depend on why you're doing it. Well, let me ask you like this. The soul without a body could do mitzvahs? No. Right. The soul... Without an animal soul could do mitzvahs? The animal soul enlivens the body. And part of the problem is that it gets its own idea of how to run the body. But it is the energy that runs the body. When you're doing a mitzvah, what is the engine for the physical action by which you become surrendered to and a clear conduit for God's will. What is the engine? The spiritual inspiration. The body, the animal soul. The body is the vehicle. I call it spiritual inspiration. What provides the power to actually carry out the physical deed of the mitzvah? The animal soul. The animal soul. So follow what's happening here. You cannot transform your animal soul. But Sadiq transformed his animal soul. Like a, like a second godly soul. Which means his animal soul now is just as sensitive to godliness as a godly soul. You can't do that. You can't change what your animal soul understands and feels. It remains, it's ten soul powers, meaning it's three powers of cognition and it's seven powers of emotion, are all hardwired to the same old stuff they were always hardwired for. Your animal soul is still selfish and concrete and uh, materialistic. And none of that matters. Because at the moment that you do the mitzvah, the animal soul has no choice but to provide itself as the motor, as the engine for the performance of that mitzvah. So even though you have not transformed the soul powers of your animal soul, its, its cognition and emotion, you are effectively co-opting its garments its thought, speech, and action for an act that makes you more one with God than your soul could ever be. So you're worried about the fact that your, your animal soul is still an animal soul and still likes what animals like and can only understand what animals are capable of understanding? Okay. All of that is true. And that only makes it more remarkable that this entity that is wired for such selfishness and, and, and materialism itself 
acts as the engine for the act which makes you more one with God than your soul could ever be. Even as the animal soul remains untransformed, its garments are being used as the vehicle to a higher oneness with God than the soul is capable of. Yeah. Oh, oh. So what does it mean that the wise man says, the wise man, his eyes are on his head. What is King Solomon saying? He's saying like this. If you're smart, doesn't say tzaddik, by the way. Decidedly not. It's not a tzaddik. If you're smart, if you know what's good for you, keep your eyes on your head. Monitor your head. Monitor the godly light that is resting on your head. The Yanukkah says that's why, by the way, you're not allowed to walk four cubits with your head uncovered because you want to show that the godly presence rests above your head. In other words, what is he saying? He's saying, keep your eye <clears throat> on the flame, monitor the flame, and make sure that it has sufficient fuel. What is the fuel for the flame? The mitzvahs. The mitzvahs, right. The oil is the mitzvahs. And the wick is? The body. The body and the flame is? The spiritual light. So if you want to continue shining sufficient spiritual light through your body, then you need to monitor and make sure that you always have sufficient mitzvahs going on. Your mitzvahs are your fuel. And you want to make sure if you see <clears throat> that the, you know, over here it's all oil heating, right? And then the truck comes and they deliver the oil. Where I move from, the, it's all uh, it's natural gas. You don't have, there's no delivery, there's no nothing. You can't run out. But over here, it's all oil heating. And you got to monitor it. You got to make sure that your oil tank isn't low. So if you feel the heat is dwindling. You say, whoa, that's the wise man's eyes are on his head, meaning he's monitoring that flame. And he's saying, whoa, I'm not shining enough godly light. Hmm, you know what? I must be running low on oil. Let me go quick and get some mitzvahs, some physical actions, because that will express itself as greater Godly light in my life, meaning on my head, but also for the benefit of those around me, for the whole world, really. The Rebbe once spoke about how the speed of light, I forget what it is, a hundred something thousand miles an hour. I mean, a second, a second, yeah. Who knows? What's the speed of light? hundred... Something like a uh, hundred something, yeah, you can Google it. Hundred something thousand miles a second. So the whole circumference of the earth. 
186,000 miles per second. Okay. And what's the circumference of the Earth? Can we Google it? Yeah, 7.5 times... The circumference of the Earth. I think it's 30,000... It's like 30,000 miles. Who can Google the circumference of the Earth? Twenty-four thousand miles. Okay. So the circumference of the Earth is twenty-four thousand miles. The speed of light is one hundred eighty something thousand miles a second. That means, just roughly, that a light, if if unobstructed, that is lit anywhere on the face of the Earth, can travel around the entire circumference of the Earth seven times in a second. So the Rebbe once mentioned about why do we compare mitzvahs to lights? And the effect of a mitzvah to a light. Near mitzvah And the Rebbe said, because when you do a mitzvah in the place where you're at, it has an effect on the entire world instantaneously. And we can even see this parallel in the physical world. Okay, so the point is like this. Let's just sum it up. The Bainini has an existential crisis. What's the point of it all? You've given me this action-based Judaism. Let me have the real tzaddik Judaism where it's all about spiritual ecstasy. And we say to him, Boychik, the whole Judaism is action-based. The soul can't do it. Only the body can do it. You got the wick, you got the oil, you got the flame. That's the body, the mitzvahs, and the godly light that you're contributing in your own life, but also to the entire world. You want to do what you were sent here to do? You want to accomplish your mission here in this world? Mitzvahs, mitzvahs, mitzvahs. Not the subjective relationship that the soul has with God, but the objective relationship that the body has with God, wherein it becomes the vehicle for expressing God's will. Good for now. Yeah. What about what? Intentions. What about intention? Oh. Chapters 38, 39, 40. <laughs> okay, anything else? Yeah? Did this change after the Chorban? Is this something that changed after the Chorban? What's the question? I'm just wondering, in Lokarish Baruch Hu, this this potential of the body okay, so your question the here the soul in this world. so the next next week next chapter chapter 36 we're going to go more into how this actually gives Hashem a presence in this world the 35 36 37 are all connected on this theme which is basically primacy of action and, it, and the, the effect of action on the world okay so let's, let's continue next week thanks Thank you.